The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Nice to be here. Um, just a word about my face, because you're probably wondering. <laughs> Looks like I ran into a brick wall, but actually I fell as I was walking my dog on Sunday morning. <clears throat> and I didn't really get hurt anywhere except I scraped my face. <laughs> it looked pretty bad on Sunday, but each day it's better and better. And I'm very fortunate. No broken bones. No discomfort to speak of. Um, And it was a mindfulness bell. (laughs) It was a wake-up call, a reminder to watch where I'm walking and pick up my feet. I think part of it is I don't pick up my feet enough. And there was just a little raised piece of cement and... You know, it happened so fast, I can't really tell you what happened, but the next thing I knew, I was sprawled out. Blood all over my face. (laughs) And it's interesting because I have a fairly large dog, and I'm always concerned he's going to trip me. He had nothing to do with it. (laughs) It was totally me. I did it all on my own. So tonight I want to talk about mindfully facing climate change. Uh, I'll be speaking from this book by Bhikkhu Analyo. Bhikkhu Analyo is a very well-respected Buddhist monk from Germany. He was actually here at IMC um, a few years ago. And... uh, he resides mostly now, I believe, at Barrie in Massachusetts, Insight Meditation Society, and travels the world teaching. So um, he has become very concerned about the climate change, the climate catastrophe that is happening, and wrote this book as a way of suggesting how we can use our practice, how we can use our mindfulness practice to face whatever climate change is going to bring to us. I don't think the issue of climate change is debatable anymore. It's here. You know, the world is experiencing great change in the climate. Um, Increase, well, we just heard about the volcano activity, right? And hurricanes are much stronger than they used to be. When I was a kid and we lived in Connecticut, we thought hurricanes were fun. We'd go down to the beach and watch the waves, I certainly don't think they're fun anymore. Um, Earthquakes. I understand there was an earthquake. Uh, The epicenter was in Morgan Hill or close to Morgan Hill last week, I think. And so it's a reality. And so as Buddhist practitioners, as 
mindfulness meditators, how do we work with the reality of climate change? And this, this book and this talk is not a solution to climate change. It's not a panacea. It is a way for us to see it clearly and to be with it completely. You know, in this practice, we're encouraged not to turn away from anything, particularly not suffering, but to face it head on. And the amazing thing is that when we face it, it loses a lot of its, um, its fear, its uh, suffering quality, and we're much more able to deal with whatever uh, the issue is. And so bringing mindfulness to the concerns of climate change allow us to explore the consequences, to explore what this means for us and our world, our earth at this particular time, and allow whatever action we may want to take to arise. Often, you know, and I think it's particularly true of climate change, when when we hear the news, and it seems to me like there's news every day recently, um, sometimes we just want to deny it and turn away. Other times we may want to, we feel propelled to take action. What do we do? And Analio is suggesting that we be careful <laughs> and that we pay attention to our minds and our hearts before taking action. He talks about the internal and the external, the internal being our hearts and our minds, and the external being the world around us. And he sort of goes back and forth, connecting the two. And he suggests that, of course, we need to take action. And at times, it can be quite strong and decisive. But without ill will, without anger, and for most of us, that's quite a challenge. <laughs> we often think it's the anger that, that propels us, that gives us the energy to take action. But anger is considered a defilement, even righteous anger. And it creates tunnel vision or not-so-clear vision. And so we want to come from a place of as much balance and equanimity as we can. 
So we practice meditation, we practice mindfulness to to let go of anger, to let go of confusion and delusion and see things more clearly. And then from that place, take whatever action seems right to us at the time. And we take action without being attached to the results. That's a challenge, too. (laughs) Most of us are quite attached to the results of our actions. But remember in Buddhist practice, what the Buddha discovered is that our suffering comes from our attachment. We want things to be a certain way. We think things should be a certain way. And when they're not, we get upset and we suffer. And so learning to let go of the results can be a big step in not just facing climate change, but in so many things in our lives. Along with that, we understand that every step is important. In Buddhist practice, we don't say the end justifies the means. The means are part of the path, and the means are just as important as the end result. So we take each step, in a way, for its own sake. And we let go of what the result will be. We, as individual human beings don't have the big picture. And even though we might be quite sure we know what the result should be, it doesn't always go that way. And that isn't necessarily bad. Sometimes things go differently from what we expect, but they tend to work out. And so what's important for us is that we are mindful and that we are ethical every step of the way. So as I said, he talks a lot about the internal and the external. And it's a way of being aware of, recognizing our relationship to the earth. We are, as humans, we are dependent on the earth for our survival. The earth isn't dependent on us. (laughs) Nature isn't dependent on on us. But we are dependent on the earth. The earth gives us what we need to sustain life. And so we want to develop a mind that is like the earth. You know, the earth 
accepts everything. We talk about equanimity. Uh, Often we use the sun as an example. The sun shines on everything. It doesn't decide that it's going to shine here but not there. (laughs) You know, there may be things that get in the way that create shadows, but the sun shines on everything. The earth, likewise, accepts everything. Without, without anger, without judgment, without um, resistance. And so we want to cultivate our minds to be like the earth, to be equanimous, to be accepting. And we always need to remind ourselves that accepting doesn't mean condoning. Accepting means not resisting. Being able to be with whatever, whatever happens. In Tibetan practice, they talk about equanimity as being with all things. Being able to be with all things. Kuan Yin. (laughs) I couldn't remember if we had a statue of her or not. (laughs) Kuan Yin, the the Chinese um, representation of compassion, is and Avalokiteshvara, the the male, are said to have a thousand arms, so they can embrace all the suffering of the world. That's a tall order for us to embrace it all, but we can practice. We can practice embracing our own suffering as well as that of others and the suffering of the earth. Because it's out of that equanimity, that balance, that our actions will be most helpful and not create more harm or more conflict or more confusion. So the Buddha talked about our being lamps or lights unto ourselves. He suggested that we should not take anything just because he said so, or another teacher said so, or we read it somewhere, but always using our mindfulness We check things out for ourselves. We verify for ourselves that this leads to happiness. This skillful action leads to happiness and away from suffering. Or this unskillful action leads to suffering and away from happiness. Again, That's a tall order. It puts a lot of responsibility on us. We don't get to just sit back and (laughs) take it all in. Um, We have to put it to the test. We have to put the teachings to the test and find out that they are, in fact, what lead to happiness. So... He talks in this book about a couple of discourses. One is called The Discourse on the World Ruler. 
And this is a discourse that talks about how um, there had been a succession of kind and compassionate and skillful kings that had followed the ancient law and under whom things thrived. The earth thrived, people thrived, things were going quite well. And then a king came along who did his own thing, so to speak, (laughs) did what he wanted and refused to follow the ancient law. And the earth and the civilization began to decline. And things were getting worse and worse. And finally, um, some of the Brahmins came to him and said, look, look what's happening. You're not following the ancient law. And look what's happening. Our earth is being destroyed and... um, Things are not thriving. And fortunately, the king took what they said to heart and began to make changes. And when he did, when he um, became more ethical and ruled on the basis of the general welfare rather than his own um, you know, desires or needs or whatever, things began to flourish again. There's there's a Jataka tale that I very much like. It's called The Monkey King. Has anybody read The Monkey King? Um... It's the story of a monkey uh, who was allegedly king of 80,000 monkeys, but we're told that 80,000 is a way of suggesting a lot of monkeys. (laughs) And there was a situation with uh, a mango tree um, that dropped a mango into the river, And the king, downriver, found it and thought it was just superb. So he was going to have his people, his whatever, um, find this mango tree and pick all of the mangoes. So the monkey king got wind of this and sent his monkeys to go pick all the mangoes. And they did, but there was one left. And I'm I'm getting ahead of myself, but anyway, the gist of the story is that to protect his monkeys from the king's men that were going to shoot bows and arrows, shoot arrows at them. Um, he formed a bridge that the, the limb of the tree 
didn't reach all the way to the other side. And so he used his own body. He tied the the branch around himself and used his own body to build a bridge to the other side and then told the monkeys, come, come quick and go across my body to the other side, which they did and they were all saved. And I love that story because here's a ruler, a king, who feels his responsibility to his tribe, his monkeys, and is willing to sacrifice his own life for the safety of his monkeys. And to me, that's so inspiring. Instead of being totally concerned with himself and what was good for him or what he wanted, he was concerned for the welfare of his whole community. So we know from the teachings that what we do matters. We call it karma. Our actions do matter. Karma is very misunderstood. Suffice it to say that what we do matters. And we know that the Buddha put great emphasis on the mind. He suggests in the first page of the Dhammapada that all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupt mind, and suffering follows as the wheel of the cart follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. So he talks about intention, and intention comes from the mind. It all begins in the mind. So our job then is to develop, to cultivate a peaceful clear, equanimous, and all the other um, qualities that, that we admire, mind, without ill will, without anger, without blame or judgment. And in terms of climate change, there's no blame, right? We all hold responsibility for the way things have changed. And I want to make a clear distinction between responsibility and blame. We're not talking about finger-pointing or blaming, but responsibility. We all have responsibility for what has happened. We all have responsibility for making the changes that we need to make uh, 
to, um, um, to save the possible destruction of the planet. So responsibility, individually and collectively, is very important. But it's important that it not be blame, that it be... Um, we take responsibility because we, clear, we see clearly and understand what we need to do. He suggests that fully engaged Buddhism is being mindful in everything that we do. I love that. It's not necessarily doing this, doing that, doing the other, but doing whatever we do mindfully. And we know from our practice that mindfulness is the most helpful, the most important tool that we have. Mindfulness helps us to see things clearly. And when we see things clearly, then we can act from that clarity rather than from delusion or greed or ill will or all the confusion that we so often have. So we want to return to mindfulness again and again and again. And we want to develop hearts and minds of metta or loving-kindness and compassion for ourselves as well as for others. Because our hearts and minds of metta and compassion protect us as well as others. So when Bhikkhu Analio was here at IMC a few years ago, he spoke about the simile of the acrobat. And the simile is that there were two acrobats that were going to perform, and of course, they were dependent on each other, right? They had to work in tandem, in balance, to be successful and not get hurt. So one of the acrobats said, we need to take, of each, take care of each other so that that will be okay. And the other one said, no, no, we need to take care of ourselves so that we'll be okay. And Bhikkhu Inalio says, Being familiar with one's own mind, cultivating it, protecting it accordingly, and attaining realization, this is called protecting oneself protects others. How does protecting others protect oneself? By the gift of fearlessness, the gift of non-violation the gift of harmlessness. By having a mind of metta and empathy for others. This is called protecting others protects oneself. 
And it's important to realize the key element here is mindfulness. So what the acrobats realized was they needed to take care of themselves in order to take care of the other, but they also needed to take care of the other in order to protect themselves. And I think that's pretty, pretty relevant um, for us in our everyday lives, but maybe particularly with um, climate change that taking care of ourselves, and in this case, taking care of our minds and our hearts, is a way of protecting and taking care of others through harmlessness, as he says. And taking care of others is a way of taking care of ourselves as well. So not two different Things, And I think it can be helpful to remember that, that we take care of ourselves to protect others. We take care of others to protect ourselves as well. There's another discourse that he talks about. This is the Discourse of Seven Sons. <laughs> and... These are discourses that I had never heard of before. I think they're ancient and and maybe not talked about so much these days. But the Discourse of the Seven Sons talks about a time when a new sun appeared in the world. And when it did, or after it did, the temperature rose. And then later another sun appeared. And when it did, rivers dried up. And then there was a time when another sun appeared. And when it did, uh, there was a drought. And then there was a time when another sun appeared. And this goes on for seven sons until there is destruction of the entire earth. Now that I don't know, this may have happened over eons. Um, uh, I'm not sure what the time frame was. But it points to the fact that, and this is part of Buddhist cosmology, And I think science confirms it, that there have been periods of destruction um, of the planet, of the earth. And one of the lessons from this teaching is the understanding of impermanence. Another one of the major teachings of the Buddha, that everything... Everything is impermanent. Everything that has the nature to arise or the nature to be born has the nature to disappear or the nature to die. That can be a hard one for us to really get. 
There's so many ways we see in our culture where we try to make things permanent. We don't want to understand that nothing is permanent. Not these bodies, not these chairs, not this building. One day, they'll all be gone. We will all die. We don't like to think about that either, but it's a reality. There's a saying sometimes attributed to Sufism and sometimes attributed to Buddhism. What's the most amazing thing? The most amazing thing is that death is happening all around us and we all think it won't happen to us. But of course it will. It will happen. And when we understand that, when we really get at a deep level, and I think with our practice we get it deeper and deeper and deeper, Um, when we really get that everything changes and everything will disappear, nothing is permanent. We, we see our attachment and we can begin to lessen it. We have lots of attachments, don't we? The important thing is to see them, to see how we're attached to whatever. We can be attached to these bodies, mostly we are. We can be attached to each other. We can be attached to our possessions, whatever whatever we have. And we don't like to think that someday we won't have them. But that's the reality. That's how this life is. That everything will cease to be. Everything when we when we talk about the contemplation of death, we talk about how everything that is dear to us will be taken away. That's how it is. We will lose everything. And I think that's so hard for us to grasp because we live in a culture <laughs> that pretends the opposite. We try to make things forever. We try to make things that, um, and reassure ourselves that we'll be around forever or that whatever we love will be around forever. But of course, it will not. And so if we begin to really grasp that Climate change may be part of letting go of everything. I'm not suggesting that we don't have responsibility or that we don't have a part in it, but we can see it as as part of the natural cycle of life, letting go of everything.
there's a word dispassion that is often used in Buddhist practice and many people don't like it because we think passion is a good thing. We think um, being passionate about things is what gets us to create and to do and etc. Dispassion in a Buddhist sense is a little bit different. It's not um, about not having passion about something, but it's about not being attached. Not being so taken with (laughs) our bodies, our possessions, um, our world, whatever. Sometimes there's a a practice called the 32 parts of the body. And it's a way of, during during a meditation practice, um, a long, like a day long or a weekend, um, going through all the parts of the body, sort of like we did with the body scan, but more in-depth going from the external to the internal and to all the not-so-beautiful parts of the body. Um, All the parts that we don't necessarily like to think of or not to be spoken of in good company, right? Jack Cornfield says it (laughs) a little more simply. He said, you know, we're just these tubes We put stuff in at the top and it comes out at the bottom. (laughs) It's a way of helping us to let go of our, our attachment to these bodies. We think they're so wonderful and so beautiful, right? And we adorn them and sometimes we take extraordinary care of them. Um... They're vehicles. They're vehicles for enlightenment. They're they're vehicles for awakening. Um, But they're vehicles. They're not forever. Uh, They get sick. They fall down and get hurt. They um, eventually will die. So not being quite so attached to them can be very, very skillful, very helpful. So I neglected to mention at the beginning that Bhikkhu Analyo uh, uses as the framework for this exposition uh, the Four Noble Truths. And so... It's divided in four chapters, and the fourth chapter is the fourth noble truth. That is, the Eightfold Path. And reminding all of us, the Eightfold Path is wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise livelihood, wise action, wise effort or energy, wise mindfulness, and wise concentration. And he uses, he, he talks about each one um, as a way of developing 
an ethics of the mind. An ethics um, uh, of harmlessness, an ethics of all these wise steps on the Eightfold Path that brings us to an ethical and an equanimous state of mind and heart. So we don't have time tonight to go into each one, but um, but that the the Eightfold Path is an important part of developing ethics. Typically, we talk about the the five precepts as ethics. They certainly are. But the Eightfold Path is also uh, a way of developing ethics. So, then the last thing he talks about is mindfulness of death. And we've already been uh, talking about it. But he suggests that we remember death can come anytime, anywhere. We don't know. Sometimes we get a diagnosis and we sort of know. But even then, that's not a guarantee. It could come sooner. It could come later. Um, Death can come at any time. And this is the reason for practicing mindfulness of death so that we are you know in a way we can never be prepared I don't think but in another way we can be Um, I have made it a practice for so many years I suspect that when it comes to me uh, there'll be the immediate shock because I think that's kind of a that's almost um uh, what's the word I want? Uh, a part of our DNA. I mean, I think I think we're built for survival, and so I think there'll be that initial shock, and then I suspect that very quickly I will settle back, you know, into a much more accepting state. I feel right now quite accepting of death. I know it will come. Um, it could come very soon. It might not come for 20 years. Who knows? Um, but I'm very, very aware, of course, that it will come. I don't know how. I don't know when. But I know it will come. And he compares the mindfulness of death with mindfulness of climate change. We know that it's happening it will undoubtedly affect us as well. I don't think it's going to happen all around the globe and somehow miss <laughs> California. We've already had fires, right? Um, it will undoubtedly affect everybody. And facing that, being aware of that, is our challenge so that we don't turn away from it. We don't go into denial and pretend it's not going to happen. But we see it clearly and adjust ourselves and our lives accordingly. That we use now the, um, the realization of climate change or climate catastrophe 
as a wake-up call, as uh, you've heard the term practicing as if your hair were on fire. (laughs) Maybe that's what it can help us to do, to practice sincerely so that we can face it with some amount of equanimity and balance. So I want to end with um, a reading on mindfulness. That I think says it so beautifully. Mindfulness can become a central tool for facing the horror of climate catastrophe with inner balance and based on that, taking the steps needed to transform what might well be the most serious challenge human beings have ever faced in their history. With mindfulness, this challenge could be transformed into an opportunity an opportunity to increase global awareness and move to a level of interaction among human beings that values the common welfare over individual profit in order to maintain the living conditions required for the survival of human civilization. I love that. From facing the horror of climate catastrophe to moving to an opportunity to increase our global awareness and move to a level of interaction among human beings that values the common welfare over individual profit in order to maintain the living conditions required for the survival of the human condition. So I know that's a lot. (laughs) I know that it's not, this is not a feel-good talk. Um, But I hope that it can be helpful. Helpful to encourage us, to in, in... Sure, that we practice, uh, that we develop, cultivate our minds and our hearts uh, to be as loving, compassionate, and equanimous as possible. So we have about five minutes if anybody wants to make a comment or ask a question. You know, sometimes I, 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 you know, I just see what's going on in the world, and I, I, I really struggle with um, how would I say it that it is only basically fear and that and anger and some of those stronger emotions that are moving the needle, um, and that. Um, 
it's sort of like we have to do, sort of do whatever it takes and that um, you know I, 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 to put it in, in sort of a harsh light I, I, I kind of get the sense that you know the, the Buddhist approach would be as long as we've got the right mindset it does it it's okay and I, I almost I'm being a little bit of the devil's advocate here, but <laughs> it's it's almost letting it's like it's getting too late for that. We just have to to move, and so I, I guess I would just ask what what would be what would he say about you know we we sort of have to all be activists exactly, and, and I and I guess I just wonder what he would say to somebody who feels that way. Yeah, it's a very, very good question. Um, <clears throat> I've thought myself, look at Greta Thunberg, the young Swedish girl. I mean, she's angry. <laughs> and she's made things happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, a couple thoughts. I think... I think she's been extraordinarily influential and, you know, um, I'm grateful for her, actually. Who knows um, how long it'll last. She may burn out or, you know. I think what he's suggesting is that if we all, he's clearly not saying, don't do anything, you know. That was very clear when he talked about sometimes decisive and strong action is necessary. But from a Buddhist perspective, without the anger, without the ill will, it's like the Buddha talked about if a thief should rip you from limb to limb and you harbor ill will, you're not following my teaching. <laughs> That's kind of hard to imagine. But I think overall, imagine if we met everything with equanimity, with, without blame. You know, without judgment, you may have all been to uh, peace marches or, or demonstrations or whatever, as I have, where they're anything but peaceful. <laughs> People are shouting at each other and, you know, in the long run, it's not going to work. It's not, it's not going to do it. I think he's asking us, look really see it clearly and get how serious it is and take action. But from that space of compassion, caring for each other, caring for all of us, um, we do this for everybody, not just for ourselves, not just for the U.S., not, you know, but for the entire um the entire world 
And we do it in such a way that that life flourishes, life thrives. I think those two discourses, the world ruler and the seven sons, are, are meant to show how when we don't have uh, a heart-mind of, of compassion and equanimity, it, it gets shown out here. Things deteriorate. Things fall apart. And that when we act from that space of true metta, loving kindness and compassion, caring for each other, caring for the earth, without blame and without ill will, that's when things will flourish. Does that, (laughs) to some extent? Yeah, that's helpful. It's always a concern, I think. Um, People often get the impression that Buddhism means not doing anything. You know, we're just supposed to sit and meditate and be... I don't think that's it at all. But when we act, can it come from that place of loving-kindness... I I seriously have been at so many demonstrations. Peace, you know, about peace. (laughs) They're they're hardly peaceful. I I will say, I I heard a story that Howie Cohn, the teacher Howie Cohn, told about, uh, I guess, a woman who was a teacher in India. and, And the story goes something like, you know, a thief tried to to steal her umbrella. Her umbrella. Have you heard yeah. the story? Yeah. And she said, it's, "No, it's I, Sharon. I, I yeah, I, I I hit the thief with all the compassion in my heart." <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, he said to her, oh. "But oh. Sharon, you should have oh. hit him over the head with your umbrella, <laughs> so, yeah. with all the loving kindness in your heart." Yeah, yeah, that's a great story because. She's not going to kill him by hitting him over the head with her umbrella. But she's making a strong statement. You may not accost me. I'm not going to injure you, but you may not accost me. And, of course, Sharon, being the queen of loving kindness, (laughs) would do it with loving kindness in her heart. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yes. I just wanted to express my... Uh, appreciating de- uh, of anticipating death um, in a positive way. Um, I mean, uh, as I think about it, you know, if you ask anybody what they're most afraid of, they're afraid of death. So if if you could move that needle, you know, um, I mean, I, I mean, I, I flashed instantly to my mother-in-law, my, my uh, rest in peace, um, in a nursing home. Those people were not um, ready to embrace death. Um, so, I mean, if, if that message could get out by in any way, you know, way shape, or form on a, uh, a regional, local, global scale, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. can you imagine how different 
our culture would be. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Yeah. It just, it's, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a great image you know, for no, people to view happily no. departing. And, and it's, it's beginning to with hospice, and there's more and more talk and concern about um, end-of-life care, et cetera. Yeah, but, I did, I mean, just, I, but, but there still seems to be, at the core of it, have an old-fashioned fear. That that you know, it would just be so wonderful to be yeah, you know, put yeah. into a mindful yeah. context and yeah, you know, right. have an have and a our whole passing. approach to death just encourages that. You know, um, we keep death out of sight. We don't want to see it. Whereas sometimes in other countries, you know, death is very visible. I remember Gil many years ago. You know, he lived all around the world when he was growing up and and how in some cultures um, when somebody died it wasn't hidden it was very much out in the open if somebody dies here you know they're taken off and they're you know. burned yeah. huh? I'm sorry as I said they're you know, they're in, you know to be incinerated or you know what happened well, but, what, but what you're I'm sorry if I could go back a second to what you were saying um I, as even as a little, little kid, I, I was told that the Greeks were very special because when somebody died, they had a party, <laughs> you know, and, and they, they, they they celebrated the life. Yeah. They didn't mourn the loss. loss. Yeah. Yeah. I just yeah. thought that was a nice paradigm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that would be a nice change, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's five after, so we probably should stop. I'll be around if anybody wants to um, say anything further. And otherwise, have a good week. Be well.